Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 13 to 22 for a sermon I've entitled Civil Disobedience in the Christian. This is after uh, Peter and John are arrested and being questioned by the Sanhedrin. We read this, starting in verse 13. Now as they, meaning the Sanhedrin members, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them, out of, uh, ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about the things which we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were glorifying God for what had happened. For the man, <clears throat> for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. You know, one of the books I have in my library is entitled God's Outlaw by Brian Edwards. It chronicles the story of William Tyndale and his work at bringing the English Bible to the people of his day. Now, Tyndale was born in Gloucestershire, England, in 1494, about 20 years before Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the wall of the Wittenberg door, uh, ch uh, church. And uh, it was at that point that the Protestant Reformation had begun. Now, when he was only 12 years of age, he uh, was working on his bachelor's degree at Oxford University. He finished it six years later. He then received his Master's of Arts certificate at the age of 21, after which he was allowed to start studying theology. But the problem was that in the theology program at the time, students would receive eight or nine years of what uh, Tyndale called heathen education before they ever opened up the scripture. And as a result, people never really learned the Bible and they were mistaken about what the scripture actually taught. Now, Tyndale was a diligent student and he had a real gift for learning languages. Uh, over the years, he became fluent in Italian and Spanish and French, along with Latin and mastering the biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek. I mean, he loved being a scholar, but his real passion was to see people come, common people come to understand the Word of God. Well, for that to happen, he knew that the Bible had to be translated in English, but the problem was at the time it was illegal to translate the Bible. And so he sought permission for it, but they denied it. So Tyndale left um, England and he went to Wittenberg, where he spent the next year uh, translating the New Testament into his native tongue. Well, he had it in the New Testament, but what he needed now was to get it to his countrymen. And since it was illegal to ship it into the country, he had them smuggled in. But when the copies were discovered, uh, the translation was condemned by the church, and uh, they were burned in public ceremonies, and Cardinal Wolseley condemned Tyndale as a heretic, and so he had to go into hiding, uh, which he did, and continued over the next year to translate the Old Testament as well. Now, he was not only a scholar, but he was also a preacher, and one who raised the ire of King Henry VIII of England because he spoke against the king's plan to divorce his wife, Catherine of Aragon, to marry Anne Boleyn. Henry demanded that the Emperor Charles V uh, extradite Tyndale back to England, 
And uh, he tried to get him over, but uh, Charles refused. Now, Tyndale managed to elude the authorities for some time. Because he was so fluent in several languages, he was able to blend into the native population without anyone realizing he was there. But eventually he was betrayed and he was uh, brought back to England and charged on heresies. And he was found guilty. And so the first thing they did was strangle him. And then they burned his body at the stake. The last thing he said before he died was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, according to the laws of England at the time, William Tyndale was indeed an outlaw. But as Tyndale saw it, he was bound to obey a higher authority than that of the government. He was bound to obey Christ himself. But that begs the question, when is it right for a Christian to defy government authorities? Under what circumstances and for what ends? These are the questions that we want to consider as we look at this portion of the scripture this morning. So why don't we pray and get into the text? Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. This is no longer theoretical for us because this is happening already in our country and it's going to get worse. So we're going to need to think clearly about these things so that we would be pleasing to you no matter what comes. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now keep in mind where we are in the story. Peter and John had gone up to the temple the day before and they had encountered a man who had been lame since birth. The guy was holding out his hand hoping to get some kind of charity from Peter when Peter looked down and said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, walk. And at that moment, he was miraculously healed so that with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk and he entered into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. When the crowd surrounded them, who saw this miracle take place, Peter took the opportunity to preach the gospel to them. He indicted them for the part that they played in the crucifixion of Jesus, but he also offered them forgiveness from God if they would but turn from their sins and believe in this now resurrected Jesus. Israel's Messiah. Well, the commotion caught the attention of the religious leaders who arrested Peter and John. They threw him in jail until the next day when the council could meet. It was at that point that they confronted these two, demanding to know by what name and by what power they did this miracle. Peter told them clearly and boldly that it was by the name of Jesus, the same man that they had condemned to be crucified just a few months before. This Jesus, God had raised from the dead, proving his claim to be the Son of Man, or Son of God, and because he was such and is such, it's only through faith in his name that a person can be saved. Well, that brings us to the first thing that we see in the text, though, the problem the religious leaders face. And this is verses 13 to 14. Look what it says. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Peter and John were arrested. For what? For healing a man who had been born lame, but now they caused to walk. I mean, what law had they violated? Was there some statue on the book saying you're not allowed to do miracles? A couple things that need to be noticed here. First of all, notice that they were taken aback by John and Peter's confidence. Peter had just accused the religious leaders of conspiring to kill their Messiah, which they had, in fact, done. You know, it says in Proverbs 28.3, The wicked flee when no one's pursuing them, but the righteous are bold as lions. But wasn't this the same Peter who just a couple months before this cowered before a servant girl when she said, Hey, you're one of his followers. Oh, no, not me. No, I, I don't even know the guy. 
What accounts for the change in Peter, who went from being the coward of the county to being bold as a lion? Well, it was the fact that he had encountered the risen Christ and that he had received the Holy Spirit. Peter knew not only that he and John were in the right, but that what they were proclaiming was the truth. You know, sometimes they'll talk about pastors. They'll say, oh, he preaches with conviction and passion. But think about it. Conviction is just simply being convinced of the truth of what you're saying. And passion is being convinced of the importance of what you're saying. Now, Peter was schooling the religious teachers, even though he and John were uneducated and untrained. Now, that doesn't mean that they had dropped out of high school. What it means is they had never been trained in the rabbinic schools of the day. And you know, you can have all the education in the world and have advanced degrees and still be clueless when it comes to the most important matters of life. The religious leaders were supposed to be the experts on the scripture, and yet Jesus rebuked them once saying this. He said, you search the scripture because you believe that in them you have eternal life. And yet it's these that testify to me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. John 5, 39 to 40. Second thing I want you to notice is that they recognized that they had been followers of Jesus. I mean, did this just now dawn on them? Man, they thought they were done with this Jesus character, but now these guys are, keep talking about Jesus, and they want to ruin the narrative that the religious leaders had going on. Third thing I want you to notice is that it says they were left speechless. I mean, what can they say? They can't deny the man's been healed because it says he was standing right there in front of them. You know, over the years, and several of the places that I've worked at, I've gotten in trouble for telling people about Jesus. Pulled into the office, told you need to tone that down. One time when I was working at the dairy, uh, my boss's boss came in and said, Doug, can I, can I talk to you? Brought me into the office. Said, um, you know, you've been talking about God and you need to stop that. I said, oh, really? Why is that? They said, well, we have a policy of no solicitation. Solicitation? I said, you mean like, when the women bring in the candles to sell, or they bring in the cookies to sell, or they bring in all the things that we sell here? Well, uh, and I said, by the way, I'm not soliciting anything. This was just someone who overheard a conversation with somebody else. And he said, well, you're, you're not allowed to talk about that. I said, well, here's what's interesting to me. I said, my coworkers mention Jesus and God far more than I ever do. Some of them just about every other word when they're swearing. So are you telling me that I'm free to use Jesus' name as a swear word, but I can't say anything positive about him? Is that what you're telling me? Well, I think you're missing the whole point here. I, this has just got to stop. He didn't have an answer. They never do. Second thing I want you to see in the text, though, is the decision the religious leaders made. By the way, when it comes to making decisions, are you the type of person who makes snap decisions? Or do you take your time, weigh out your options, mull things over before you take your course of action? You know, when it comes to foreign policy, American politicians are quick to send in troops without much thought about how they're going to get them back home. Think about it. The U.S. invaded Iraq back in 2003. We defeated the Iraqi army in five weeks, toppling the Ba'athist regime of Saddam Hussein. Hey, mission accomplished. One of the troops coming home. I remember telling my coworkers at the time that America would have troops in Iraq for at least the next 20 years. Well, most of them came home in 2021, but did you know we still have 2,500 troops? In Iraq, we sent forces in to oust the Taliban in Afghanistan. After 20 years of occupation and $2.2 trillion in spending, we pulled out the troops, leaving behind $80 billion worth of military hardware. And guess what? The Taliban is back to running the country, just like it was. 
Now, is this a sermon on U.S. foreign policy? No. I'm just giving you examples of how important it is to consider all the facts and think through the implications and possible outcomes for decisions that we're about to make. Now, the religious leaders here in this council were shrewd, careful, and calculating politicians, but they faced a problem. Look what it says in verse 15. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what will we do with these men? For a fact that the, a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We can't deny that. But so they will no longer spread it any further among the people. Let's warn them to speak no more or longer to any man in this name. I mean, think of what they're saying. Okay, we know a miracle's happened. And I'm sure we could get the major media to back us on our narrative, but the news has already gotten out. There's too many people who know the truth. But we want this message of Jesus not to continue to spread. And so what let's, we'll do, we'll bring them back in, and, and we'll tell them to stop spreading spiritual disinformation, or we're going to find them and imprison them. Hmm. So if you deviate from the government narrative, you're likely to get in trouble? Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now notice they admit a miracle takes place. Miracles are, by definition, are a supernatural act of God. God healed this lame man when Peter invoked the name of Jesus. But that means that God, through this miracle, authenticated the message that Peter was preaching of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. Well, shouldn't that mean that you would believe it if it's coming from God? But keep in mind, these are the same religious leaders who bought off the guards who had guarded the tomb of Jesus, saying, tell the people that the disciples came at night when you were sleeping and stole the body. It's not that they didn't know the truth. It's that they refused to accept the truth. And folks, listen carefully. It's the same today. Most people know far more truth than they can handle. It's not that they don't know the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. It says, and when they summon them, they commanded them not to speak, or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That brings us to our third point, though, the response of Peter and John. Rosa Parks sat down in the seat in the back of a bus belonging to the Montgomery city lines. At the time, according to law, Negroes were required to sit in the back of the bus. After a few more stops, all the seats in the white section filled in, and... Uh, there were three white people who were standing. And so the bus driver came back and looked at Parks and three others and said, you guys are going to have to get up and stand so these white folks can sit down. Three of them did, but Rosa Parks didn't. As a result, uh, she said this. She said, when he saw me sitting, he asked me if I was going to stand up. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have to call the police and you're going to be arrested. I said, well, you may do that. And Parks was arrested, but the story of the incident spread, and as a result, they boycotted and crippled the finances of the bus company. For 13 months, the buses stood idle while black people walked to work, sometimes three and four miles, because they weren't going to be treated as second-class citizens. It ended only after the Supreme Court outlawed uh, segregation as unconstitutional. Now, in 1992, in a National Public Radio interview, Park said this, I did not want to be mistreated. I did not want to be deprived of a seat that I would paid for. It was just time. There was an opportunity for me to take a stand to express the way I felt about being treated in that manner. I had not planned to get arrested. I had plenty to do without having to end up in jail. But when I had to face that decision, I didn't hesitate to do so because I felt we had endured 
that too long. The more we gave in, the more we complied with that kind of treatment, the more oppressive it became. Now, Rosa Parks showed great moral courage when she took her stand on an important issue. But 1,900 years before that, Peter and John showed great courage when they took their stand on the most important issue of all times, the proclamation of the gospel. It really said in verse 19, But Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. But as for us, we cannot stop speaking of the things we have seen and heard. Now we have to remember as Christians that we have a responsibility to subject ourselves to the governing authorities. Paul in Romans chapter 13 says this, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except for from God, and those that exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil behavior. Do you want to be free from a fear of authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it's a minister of God for your good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it's a minister of God as an avenger who brings wrath upon those who practice evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only for, uh, because of wrath, but because of conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes to rule, or for rulers, or uh, servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes do, custom to whom customs do, fear to whom fears do, honor to whom honors do. Listen, Christians are to be model citizens, following the laws, paying our taxes, praying for government leaders, even ones we did not vote for. Unless, and until, listen carefully, and here's your principle. They command us to do something that God forbids or forbid us to do something that God commands. If the Nazi government officials ask you to inform on your Jewish neighbors, you refuse. If as a Navy chaplain they order you not to pray in Jesus' name because it's offensive to some of the Muslim soldiers and Navy men, you refuse. You continue to pray in Christ's name. As a doctor, you cannot assist in an abortion, nor do gender reassignment surgeries. As a a pharmacist, you cannot fulfill uh, prescriptions for morning-after pills. As a teacher, you cannot comply when they demand that that you refer to a girl as a he and a boy as a she. And if the government says that for the good of everyone's health and for the profits of the pharmaceutical companies, you have to shut down your churches, but don't worry, it's only for a couple of weeks, Oh no, a couple of months. Oh no, three years. You refuse. By the way, remember they allowed liquor stores and marijuana shops and abortion clinics to stay open because those were deemed as essential businesses. Well, the church was not. I know of one case where a church housed homeless people at night. They were told that they they were allowed to continue to host homeless people at night, but if they taught them Bible studies, they would be in trouble. Grace Church, where John MacArthur pastors was targeted by both Los Angeles city officials and also Governor Newsom. They were fined hundreds of thousands of dollars, but when they filed suit for violation of their First Amendment rights, it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court um, ruled in their favors. As a result, uh, the L.A. County had to pay the church $800,000. But by the way, it may not be that way another two years from now. I'm sure many of you heard about the couple of Canadian pastors who had been arrested. 
uh, put in jail. One of them, they put a fence around the entire church to keep people from going in. Okay, the government tells you you cannot preach the gospel. It's hate speech. You can't tell people that they have to repent of their sins and turn to Christ, otherwise they'll go to hell. But Jesus says we must tell them that. Who are we supposed to obey? Caesar or Christ? He said, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. But as for us, we cannot stop speaking of these things that we have seen and heard. And folks, you don't have to be a prophet to see that the price that we're going to pay as Christians in this country for preaching the gospel is going to go up in the years to come. The question is this. When the price goes up, are you going to be willing to pay it? This is not a small issue. Right after warning his disciples, that they would face persecution, Jesus said this, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess them before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The faithful Christian is always at war with a godless culture around him. When it comes to Jesus, we cannot stop speaking. We will not stop speaking. We must preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead as the only hope for humanity. That brings us to our last point, though. The results that the Spirit achieved. This is found in verses 21 to 22. Look what it says. When they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them, on account of the people, for they were glorifying God, all glorifying God, for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was performed. Now, ultimately, it's not Peter and John, but the Holy Spirit working through them that achieves these results that God intended. And what were those results? Well, the first thing is that the lame man had been healed. Now, it's easy as we get into the story to forget that first fundamental fact, that there was a guy whose life was turned upside down or better, right side up. He had spent 40 years not being able to walk, and yet now he's walking and leaping and praising God. And more importantly, it implies that he was converted as a result of this. Secondly, the gospel was being proclaimed. First to the crowds who witnessed the healing and then to the religious leaders who interrogated Peter and John. What we need today are Christians who are bold and clear and faithful in bringing the gospel to our perishing culture. Christians should be involved in the political process, but it's not ultimately politics that is going to save us. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. The thing I want you to notice, though, is that the church continued to grow. Same day that Peter and John were hauled off to jail, hundreds, perhaps thousands, were brought into the kingdom. The apostles' pain turned into their countrymen's gain as salvation came to their houses as well. And if we want to see people in this country come to Christ, folks, we're going to have to suffer. You know, I said in my Bible study the other day, I said, I'm worried that for a lot of evangelicals, the main reason they want abortion to go away, they do think it's wrong, because they're worried God's going to bring judgment on our nation and we'll lose our middle-class lifestyle. But what if God's plan is to bring persecution to the church, to cleanse it from hypocrites, and then to bring more people in as they see us finding joy in the midst of our suffering and being unwilling to back down. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to pay that price? Remember what Jesus said? 
anyone who wants to be my follower has to take up his cross and follow me. He said, you got to sit down and count the cost. Count the cost. The devil always opposes the spread of the gospel, and he's always going to bring persecution in any place where the gospel is going out effectively. Here's the fourth thing, though. People were glorifying God. Luke tells us here that they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Whenever the Spirit's working, people are proclaiming Christ with the result that God is glorified, and this is what matters the most. Well, Peter and John had to suffer a little bit here, and later they're going to suffer a whole lot more. But in and through these trials, the gospel went forward, and the church grew. May God give us the grace to be willing to sacrifice our own comfort and ease for the sake of people coming to know him through Jesus Christ, his son. You know, when I was a kid, we had one bathroom for 11 people in our house. And finally, my parents decided to put another bathroom in the basement. And I remember every morning when I'd come out of the shower, there was a little plaque that was sitting on the edge of the wall that said this, One life, till soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. You know, even as a non-Christian, I thought, that's true, isn't it? Sixty. I'm 60. I don't know how I got to be 60. But I'm looking out at some of you guys that used to be this tall, and now you're at least this tall. <laughs> and the years are going by quickly, aren't they? And the opportunity to serve the Lord is fleeing away. Serve Jesus now. I guarantee you'll be glad you did when we stand before him. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Our Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. You know, I think one of the most difficult things about living in America is it's just easy to, you know, sit down in our comfortable chair, watch TV, and let the world go by. But it's not just going by, it's going to hell in a handbasket in our country. Everybody, including non-Christians, realize there's something radically wrong. But the only answer is going to be to reclaim the gospel in our churches and preach it, and enough people converted that we can staunch the rent, uh, the, the rot that's going on in our culture even now. So, Father, I pray that you would give us grace and mercy to live in ways that are pleasing to you and then take the opportunities that we have to present the gospel because that's the only way people get saved. So bless us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.